Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are still excited because we have something even more awesome than last time. Alex, what have we got on today? Nikolai's back for part three. Nikolai Eberholz, the daddy. Pike Gray on Twitter. You all follow him if you're World War One minded. Uh, he is the daddy of Austria-Hungary in the First World War. How are you doing, Nikolai? I'm fine, thank you. Ready to do this? We're going to do yes. 1917 and 18 today, yeah. aren't we? So we're going to take it the up to the hall. end of the war. Yeah. The last hall. So, when we left it last time, 1916 had ended. You ended with telling us a bit about the Alpine Front, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Emperor even is it well the empire as well is dead um what does 1917 look like what are the plans what are the prospects are austria-hungary in a good place uh well as i, as I said last time they, they've survived 1916 which is already possible and what many probably w- would have thought they wouldn't um, I mean, they've held against the, the Italians. They've successfully prevented a, a Romanian invasion. Um, they knocked uh, um, the, the Russian Brusilov uh, offensive back, uh, despite incredible losses. Um, but of course, the Russians have lost most of their fighting stre- strength in this offensive, uh, and now things are starting to happen in the east in Russia. Um, with both soldiers and civilians are just tired and exhausted of the war, and there are soldiers striking at the front and mass strikes at protests at home. And then, of course, in March, you have a full-blown revolution uh, which uh, breaks out and the side is forced to abdicate. This is what we call the February Revolution because of the difference in, in calendars we use, but it's actually in March in our world. Um, and now a uh, new provisional government is uh, put in place in Russia, but they continue to uh, to they decide to continue the war uh, for now. Uh, but there's no doubt that the army is very close to breaking point, and it will take uh, very little for it to to all come crashing down. Um, downside: the army has suffered incredible, irreplaceable losses, both in men and material, and they are. Now, following the Priscilla offensive, almost totally reliant on the Germans, who will take up, uh, actually uh, send uh, their own officers, who will, in reality, uh, even though it will not be that on paper, you know, it will, it will look like uh, the Austro-Hungarians are still in charge of their units, but in many cases, the Germans are actually in the background in charge of Austro-Hungarian units, because that's the only way that they can uh, 
be confident that they will be able to hold um, the the army in the east is is absolutely shattered by the Brazil offensive, and the soldiers have started to doubt if they can actually uh, w- win against the Russians because they've seen how how powerful the Russians are when they they commit. So Austria-Hungary's got a new emperor. Mm. He starts making some changes. Yeah. The big question is, are they actually good changes? Well, you'll be probably be happy to hear that on the 1st of March, 1917, he finally dismisses Conrad as his general staff. I was yeah. just so, so excited. Yeah. Oh, what a dick. <laughs> so recap yeah recap for people from episodes one and two this is the man that has basically led hundreds of thousands of people to slaughter to impress his girlfriend (laughs) might be oversimplifying it a bit very oversimplified but yeah it's basically (laughs) what it is anyway uh yeah conrad he's going to uh he's of course offended and he wants to request retirement but um but the new emperor, Karl, uh, he talks him into remaining on active duty. So you're not completely over him yet. Uh, Alex, but, um, but, so, but he's going to be in command of an army group in, uh, in Tyrol, which consists of the 10th and 11th army for, uh, for the rest of the war, uh, not as commander-in-chief. So, so, um, but of course, this, despite being dismissed, Connor is still a very influential character in the army. Uh, he is, has the backing of many officers and uh, who who uh, have had him as, as a teacher, uh, and they remain loyal to him in a way. Um, now, the guy who replaces him in is a man called Arthur Arts von Straussenberg, um, who Karl, uh, the emperor, knew when he was uh, on, on active service in, in Romania. Um, and Karl also uh, makes himself in in the end of uh, sorry in the beginning of December uh, nineteen. 16, he uh, takes over as the supreme commander of the armed forces. And um, as chief of staff, uh, Arts is going to um, be much more of an advisor to the emperor in military matters than he's going to be pushing his own strategies like Conrad had done. Now, another thing that the, the emperor is, is going to do is he's going to start immediately looking for a way to save his emperor Empire and um, and uh, prevent it from co- complete collapse and dissolution, and end the war. And this is going to spark of this this very complicated uh, affair, which will be called the uh, Sixtus Affair. And it begins in March 1917 when he uh, tries to contact the Entente powers through his brother-in-law, uh, Prince Sixtus, uh, who is serving as an officer in the Belgian army. Uh, and he's hoping to conclude a separate piece. And just that just tells you how weird this uh, <laughs> this period of time is where everybody is fighting their own family, basically. Um, but yeah, he's going to try to um, uh, to uh, to make a, a separate piece through this. It's completely outside of the Germans, of course. Um, except it's not going to come to anything, except uh, that in, in 1918, the French will actually publish uh, this secret letter um, from March 1917 for the Germans to see. And the Germans are, of course, furious, calling that they, they've been betrayed uh, and demanding uh, an apology uh, from Karl. However, secretly, they're kind of thrilled uh, because now they have an almost complete hand um, and near full control of Austria-Hungary because they, they have shown themselves to be uh, treacherous to the, the alliance. Um. 
let's go to Italy. Mm-hmm. What is happening in Italy at the beginning of 1917? Well, we shortly mentioned uh, three shorter battles of the Sanso uh, mm-hmm. in um, in also 1916, and those were the uh, the 7th, 8th, and 9th, <laughs> if uh, anyone yeah, yeah. Back, uh, <laughs> at this point, and anybody counting. Um, but uh, for the 10th, which is going to launch in May uh, 1917, uh, he is going to launch a massive thrust on the castle, which is this limestone plateau where a lot of fighting has taken place already, uh, especially during the, the first battles. Um, uh, and he's going to try to break through the Austro-Hungarian lines and capture uh, Trieste, which is one of Italy's primary war aims. And this will be the largest battle on the Italian front so far, involving some 400,000 Italian troops against uh, around 200,000 Austro-Hungarian troops. The general thing is that the, uh, uh, the Italians are almost always outnumbering the uh, sorry, the Italians are almost always outnumbering the Austro-Hungarians uh, two to one on the Italian front. Uh, but of course, the Austro-Hungarians are defending, and they have quite strong defensives, and the terrain is just brutal to attack over. Um, but it will open uh, on May 12th with a, a, a strong uh, bombardment lasting about two days. Um, and um, it will end about a month later with 150,000 Italian so- uh, soldiers from become casualties uh, and half as many uh, Austro-Hungarians. But it will not have broken through again. Um, it's once again, the line has, hold, uh, has held um, against these incredible odds, but there's a no doubt in Borojevic, who is the commander of the uh, Austro-Hungarian forces on the Sunsu front, that things have been starting to happen and, and, and there are really uh, starting to appear cracks that maybe they won't be able to hold in the end. But of course, the same is true for the Italians. And uh, almost as soon as, as this battle is, is over, Cadona is going to launch another offensive, but this time in the Trentino, to try and recapture some ground that the Austro-Hungarians took in the... Uh, the uh, uh, spring and summer of uh, of 1916 uh, during Conrad's um, punishment expedition. Uh, and he's going to attack on this mountain called Mount uh, Otigara. And it's going to be a bloodbath for the Italians. They, they are outnumbering them three to one, but, but the Austro-Hungarians know they're coming. Uh, the Italians take the mountain with, with some of their best troops, the Alpini, the, mount, the mountain troops. Um, but a strong... Austro-Hungarian counter-attack on the uh, 25th of, of, of June is just going to sweep off the Italians completely. It's off incredible casualties. And one of the main ingredients in the Austro-Hungarian success here is that they now have quite well-trained assault troops, the Sturmtruppen, based on the German example. Um, and they're going to be playing a, a big role in, in Austro-Hungarian uh, tactics for, from now on. But for the Italians, this Battle of Montegari is a disaster, and the morale of the army plummets, and some of his best troops have been lost in in this, quite frankly, futile uh, offensive. I think we should add something into the mix. Mm. Spice it up just a little bit. Uh, Alex is going to laugh at me for what I'm going to say next. <laughs> oh my God, you're not. I am. Oh, this is like this is. Hang on, let me savor this moment. I'm savoring it. Savoring it. Go on. And I know she's going to retweet this to every naval historian just to laugh at me. Let's talk about naval history. Yes. Wait, just... wait, wait, wait. Say that again. Let's talk about naval history. I feel Uh-oh. so vindicated right now. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> because it is so exciting. 
It is exciting. I'm going to try to make it very exciting, and I'm, I'm sure that I have a few uh, a few facts in here uh, prepared for 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 this one that uh, you will find interesting, despite it being about boats and water. I am. I'm yeah. listening intently. I'm yeah. ready. <laughs> well, there will be a test yeah. after. There <laughs> will be a test after. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the the Australian Navy is, of course, relatively small. They don't have much coastline compared to the, the other great powers, um, and they're, they're going to fight a few engagements. Um, but the uh, the Navy's heavy ships are going to spend most of the war as a, a fleet in being, uh, meaning that they'll remain in port and not engage the enemy directly, but rather forcing him to allocate significant naval forces to guard them, uh, thus preventing them from being used elsewhere. Um, so they're not actually going to engage much, but of course there are some some um, some battles uh, we we're going to get into at least one uh, in a moment. But of course the most active part of the Austro-Hungarian Navy is uh, the submarines, as it is in in uh, in, in Germany. Um, but the submarine fleet is is quite a lot smaller and more modest than the German one. But they are rather successful. Uh, and just for a few stats here. Uh, U-27, for example, which is Austria-Hungary's most successful submarine, it will sink 23 ships in one sortie in 1917, which I think is pretty impressive. You uh, know the couple I told you about that did the Serbian retreat? Yeah. They went back to England, then went back out and were in Corfu and that, and then um, they were torpedoed by an Austrian ship. There you go. Yeah. Um, and another fact, the U-5 is responsible for the single most deadly sinking of the war. The Italian troop transport, SS Principe Umberto, which cost the lives of almost 2,000 men um, in one sinking. And, of course, then Austro-Hungarian Navy has probably the most famous submarine captain in history. Do you care to guess? Go on. Von Trapp. Uh, oh, brilliant. Is it absolutely yeah, Christopher Plummer? It, it is Christopher Plummer's uh, of Sound of Music fame, who is a naval hero in Austria-Hungary during the war and oh, wow. becomes very famous for sinking an armored cruiser. Uh, and French singing cruiser. while he did it. And uh, Yes, mm. so every time you hear uh, Christopher Plummer singing Edelweiss in, on TV, you can, yeah. you can lecture think about everybody the... around you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I have not been able to uh, confirm this, but uh, I've read somewhere that he is responsible for the first submerged nighttime sinking of a ship. Mm. But I don't know much about naval stuff, so I haven't been able to confirm it. But uh, I've read that somewhere. Um, Any so naval historians out there? Yeah, please give us a hand. Yes, exactly. Uh, anyway, the uh, largest naval battle involving the Austro-Hungarian Navy is uh, going to take place in May of 1917, which fits very nicely into our timeline here. Um, and that is the Battle of the uh, Strait of Otranto, um, which is this um, um, strait of, of, of water connecting the Adriatic uh, to the rest of the Mediterranean. And they're going to launch a... Um, a uh, a fleet consisting of uh, four cru- cruisers, one armored, three light, uh, four destroyers, and three submarines uh, to try and break a naval blockade that the Allies have made in this strait, cutting off uh, Austria-Hungary, Austria-Hungary from uh, from the rest of the oceans. Um, and it's going to be commanded by another famous character, Admiral Miklos Horthy, who will later become the regent of Hungary uh, in the interwar years and during World War II. He is uh, Admiral of the Austro-Hungarian Navy and will become a hero in this battle. 
Um, the plan is to attack these small uh, drifters uh, with the LSUs to, to, to try and prevent submarines from coming out. And they attack during the night and sink quite a few of these uh, drifters um, and will later be attacked by, by an Allied fleet um, where they will uh, sink two destroyers and damage another destroyer and a light cruiser uh, with some losses but not significant but it is a battle that has very little strategic value, and it's the only time where they really engage in a in a in a in a in a larger battle. There are all the small engagements here and there, uh, but that's about it for for Austria Hungary. I'm still just marginally speechless that Alina went down the naval history route. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, it's now recorded, so it um, is, yeah. and I'm going to dying off of this for weeks but let's <laughs> head back to somewhere where she's infinitely more comfortable which is to the east yeah. what is happening there after the bris uh, the brusilov offensive yeah um if you remember the um the um the russians have had their february revolution and decided to uh, go on with the war with the uh, uh, provisional government uh, and uh, they're going to try and launch another offensive, um, sort of similar to what they tried before during the Brazilov offensive. But of course, the army is now quite fragile. Um, and the, the the offensive which will be uh, named after the new Minister of War. It's called the Kerensky offensive. Um, they hope to make a, a great victory uh, and then heighten the army's morale and strengthen the government's, uh, quite frankly, fragile power. Uh, and it is going to be led by Brusilov again as well. Um, and the offensive launched on the 1st of July and see some initial successes, um, but finally the Russian soldiers are sick and tired of war, and they begin to mutiny and refuse to attack, and now the Austro-Hungarians and Germans are able to counter-attack and meeting quite uh, weak def- um, resistance, they're able to force the Russians back. Uh, I think something like 200, 250 kilometers, something like that. Um, and the defeat greatly weakens the government's power and opens the door for another revolution and the Bolshevik takeover in October. Um, uh, not in October, but yeah, in the October revolution a few months later. Um, on the Romanian front, there's also stuff happening. The Romanians have spent uh, about seven months um, of uh, a lull after they they've lost control of their capital, um, it's where they've pulled back to um, to Bessarabia, which is today Moldova, um, and rebuilt their army with the help of the French and modernizing the army. And in July, there this new army is going to um, launch uh, quite a powerful offensive against the Austro-German forces there. <clears throat> at, a, at a at a village called Marasti, I'm not familiar with how to pronounce these uh, Hungarian names, but uh, I'm going to try. But they break through the uh, Austro-Hungarian lines and completely disrupt a planned offensive to finally knock uh, Romania out, out of the war. And then they're going to follow this up with another defensive victory at a place called almost the same, but Marasesti, uh, the following month. Um, but while they do really prove themselves in the final hour um the russians are in complete upheaval uh, and and they cannot uh, support them at all and they are basically on their own so the fighting stops there for for romania really so we're now going we're going back and forth a little bit here so yeah. we're now going to head back to italy yeah there's got to be more battles of the isonzo right <laughs> there is the 11th battle of the isonzo 
Uh, and yes, uh, that is of course because uh, the Italian commander Cadorna is still in charge. So of course we need another offensive. And the 11th battle is even larger and bloodier than the 10th battle, which was the largest until then, uh, which a total of almost a quarter of a million casualties on both sides in a, less than a month. Um, and Cardona takes some ground, uh, also some quite significant ground, but they are still unable to break through completely. But the massive losses that that uh, the Italians have, uh, have suffered during the 10th and 11th battle are are really affecting their morale. On the other hand, in, uh, for the Austro-Hungarians, the casualties they've suffered have made them seriously doubt that now they can hold at all. And the Germans are also beginning to doubt this, that they will survive yet another bloodbath, which, given Cadorna's record, is probably already being planned at this point, even though they just lost again. Um, and as a result, Austria-Hungary asked for German assistance to launch an offensive of their own on the Italian front. Uh, and um, the Germans agree, and they send troops from the Eastern Front, which now uh, is quite quiet after the, the failed Kerensky offensive, uh, and they make a new army, uh, the 14th Army, consisting of nine Austro-Hungarian and six German divisions, uh, and commanded by a German general called uh, Otto von Bülow. And they choose to make uh, an attack um, in around this settlement called Kalpareto uh, on the Oberysonse front uh, in German. It's called Kafait, um and in Slovene it's called uh, Kuparit. Um, and they lost, launch a massive offensive on the 24th of October uh, with a powerful uh, gas bombardment on the Italian positions followed by a heavy bombardment involving more than 2,000 artillery pieces. And the Italian defenses are completely shattered and the uh, Austro-Hungarians are able to break through led by assault troops. They're moving through the valleys um, while special trained uh, mountain troops, one of them is the famous uh, World War II General Erwin Rommel, mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, they're moving along the ridges and, and crests to protect the flanks of this offensive. And so the Italians are in, in, in general retreat and they are forced to pull back from the Isonzo as well. They're forced to pull back to, to the Taliamento River, uh, which is quickly followed by a further retreat to the Piave River, more than a hundred kilometers uh, from the Isonzo. Uh, and here they're able to, to regroup and stop the, the Austro-German offensive, uh, which line is, 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 uh, which line of supply is becoming uh, overstressed to this part. But it is a disaster for, for, for Italy. It is a, a great victory for the Austro-Germans. Uh, of course, they haven't uh, knocked Italy out of the war, but they've taken around 300,000 casualties. Uh, the the um, uh, Italians were 250,000 of them are, are prisoners, uh, and they've lost, I think it's, it's almost uh, 5,000 artillery pieces and mortars and 3,000 machine guns. So it, it is really a disaster for them. And as a result, uh, command, uh, Cadorna is finally relieved of command. Uh, and it is a great victory for for the central powers who've comparatively few losses of around 70,000 casualties. That's it. Do you know what, Alina? It's still in Italian. Doing a caporetto mm. or it's yes. all gone caporetto is Italian for fucking something up beyond all recognition yes it is that significant this uh, yeah it's it still in like modern usage isn't it 
Yeah. So our use of foobar, basically. Yeah, American basically, athlete, yeah. But... So if you were to crash your motorbike and run a squirrel over and, mm. like, whatever, you'd be like, oh, I went for a motorbike ride and it went completely caporetto. <laughs> I'm going to use that. That sounds pretty... I'm using that now, from now on. Caporetto, yeah? Mm. Done. Done and dusted. <laughs> Nikolai, <laughs> listen, do you, in your opinion, do you think that 1917 would be classified as a success or a failure for Austria-Hungary? I think it's a, it's it's generally a successful year for them. Uh, I mean, they're still yeah. they're still losing great casualties uh, and everything, but they're they're not really having any serious defeats like they have the previous years. I mean, it's all relative, of course. If you you hear the casualties figures of this, it is massive casualties for an army that doesn't have anything left at this point, and it's really really uh, at its breaking point or or at least rapidly a- approaching it. But they're winning, uh, and they're they're winning well. Of course, this is also because the Germans are taking more and more charge, and aiding them for once uh, in these offensives. But I mean, a, a battle like the Battle of Caporetto is often hailed as is always just a German success uh, more than it is an Austro-Hungarian. Yeah. But, but there are more Austro-Hungarian troops, and they play a very important role in this battle. Uh, and it also forces the um, the uh, French and um, and British to send troops to Italy, um, diverting them from the from the uh, the Western Front, and there will even be a, a single American regiment there uh, by the end of the war, uh, mostly for propaganda reasons. And I think they have like one combat casualty. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So, we've got to 1918, but if, uh, at the end of 1917 is significant, isn't it? Because Russia makes peace. Yes. Uh, following the uh, Kerensky Offensive, there's really uh, this new... Uh, revolution, Bolshevik takeover, and they are more focused uh, on on their own domestic crisis now uh, with civil war breaking out that they just want to make peace as fast as possible. So they make peace, uh, they make an armistice at first um, in uh, in uh, early December um, and peace negotiations begin. And But with this, although the actual peace is not going to come until 1918, it pretty much ends the war on the Eastern Front. The Romanians, being alone on the Eastern Front, also uh, decide on, on, on making um, uh, an, an armistice with the, with the Central Powers, even though they've had some pretty impressive victories. Um, yeah, and uh, in March, 
um, following a f small flare-up of um, of uh, of the fighting in in February, they signed a peace, uh, the the peace treaty of of, um, of Brest Litovsk, which is quite harsh, um, and they are awarding a lot of uh, territory to the central powers. Um, and this will, of course, free up a large number of troops for Austria and Hungary. These will go to Italy, naturally. Um, and just to round off, um, and I'm sorry, I'm jumping a bit ahead on this. In May, uh, Romania will also sign their own uh, peace agreement um, mm. with the, the central powers. However, Romania will actually re-enter the war in 1918. And I believe Romania is the only country that actually makes peace and enters the uh, First World War twice. Do you know when they do this? For the second no. time, on November the tenth, nineteen eighteen, <laughs> uh, with military operations beginning just three hours before the signing of the armistice. In uh, timing is not the Romanian strong point in the First World no, War, is it? No. no. <laughs> so it is. It is a, a side note, of course, but it, it's an interesting uh, little uh, side note to history. But now there is peace on uh, on the Eastern Front. There will be uh, some some operations uh, and and support of of uh, a new Ukrainian. Uh, state uh, and there will be so, some troops engaged there, and of course it's occupation forces. But the big Russian enemy is 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 by then. We are now at the beginning of 1918. Mm. Austria-Hungary is now predominantly fighting Italy, isn't it? Yes, they are. Uh, Italy is the main enemy now, um, and on paper it looks quite promising. They've been severely beaten in, in uh, at Caporetto. And uh, Austria-Hungary can now begin transferring troops from east to Italy. Um, however, the uh, reality is quite a bit different, um, as they are also at the end of of, of their their their, uh, their capabilities at this point. Uh, now, the main part of the the front runs along the Piave River, which uh, runs uh, into the Adriatic, just north of uh, of Venice. So they are at the gates of Venice at this point. And um, along the uh, Monte Grappa massive, um, and uh, by 1918, it is clear to both sides that that this is where the war in Italy will be decided. It will be decided who who wins or loses. Um, yeah, but of course the Italians are no longer at the front. The the British and French, and very little, uh, but worth mentioning, American uh, troops uh, are there, um, and uh, they have a new commander. Uh, who's called Amando Diaz, who is not like Cardona going to attack, attack, attack. He's going to wait and rebuild his army. Uh, and he's going to actually create a quite uh, strong army at the at the time when he's ready to, to, to fight the, the Austro-Hungarians, even though the uh, the um, uh, the allies uh, in, in France and, and Britain especially are pushing him for, for launching uh, offensives again and again and again. He's going to hold back for now. What state is the Austro-Hungarian army in at the moment? Is it like the British and the Germans when they're really drawing on their last reserves of manpower? Yeah, they are. Uh, they, it, at the beginning of 1918, the army is doing okay. Uh, they have captured a lot of, uh, of, of, of food stocks uh, and other supplies in, in northern Italy, uh, in the area of Italy that they, they, they occupy. Uh, however, these stocks run out relatively quickly, and the, um, 
the empire is low on food and in general because of the naval blockades and because of uh, internal strife between the Austro- Austrian and Hungarian half. I won't go too much into that. And then, of course, the, the Russian piece, uh, which has been built uh, as this uh, bread piece, as it's called, is not producing the results that they really want. Uh, things are just not coming out of their uh, foodstuff and grain and cereals and stuff like that. It's not coming out in the... the they, they expect so much more of it. Um, at the same time, there's strikes in arms factories and there's lack of raw material. If there's lack of rolling stuff, it means that the army is badly supplied and they don't have ammunition, they don't have shells, they don't have rifles, they don't have uniforms, and they don't really have any helmets. The army only issues around a million helmets in total during the war, which is quite low, um, especially considering on the Italian front, they, they, they're fighting in rocky terrain where they the ground really splinters a lot and it causes a lot of head injuries. Um, so the army is lacking even the most basic army uh, items by, by 1918. Um, and they actually issue a bounty for each enemy weapon captured, as well as for saving your own weapon when wounded, uh, with an extra bonus if the bayonet is saved too. Uh, and um, by the end of the year, there's actually a pamphlet issued which says that a lightly wounded soldier who shows up at a dressing station without either his rifle or his helmet will not be attended to before he's retrieved the set items. So that <laughs> says a lot about the material uh, problems that, that Austria-Hungary is in at this point. Mm. But we can get back to some of the uh, things go back bad very quickly from here. Uh, but let's return to that later because it, it, it comes a little later in the year where things really turn sour. So what happens in June 1918 in Italy? Well, in, in, in June um, 1918, I mean, the, the first six months of, um, of, uh, of the year has been relatively quiet on the Italian front, at least. Uh, but, of course, in the West, it's a completely another story. Um, the Germans have launched their uh, the German Spring Offensive in, in March. And they have, of course, some initial successes, some impressive gains, but they're also losing a lot of, of troops. And um, now they are also facing the Americans more and more. So um, they are um, going to, to pressure uh, Austria-Hungary to launch an offensive of, of their own in Italy to hope that they will, they will divert forces, uh, the Allies will divert forces to Italy. Uh, and now there's... No doubt that Austria-Hungary really wants to crush Italy uh, following Caporetto, and, and, and this is probably going to be their last chance um, at it. Um, so they're going to stake all of it on a single offensive. But almost immediately, there's a conflict between what, what should happen. Um, there's uh, a, a, an internal s- a strife between Arts, the new commander-in-chief, Conrad, the former commander-in-chief, and Borjevic, the uh, hero of the Isonzo Front, who's now commanding the, uh, the troops on the Piave. Um, and Arts, he, he favors an attack in Western uh, Trentino towards uh, Brescia. Uh, Conrad, he wants an, uh, uh, to lead his own offensive in the, the South Tyrolean Alps. And Borojevic uh, wants to remain uh, on the defensive, but realizing that this is not really an option at this point, he wants to make an offensive along the Piave River. And in the end, they really go for the worst of options because they go for all three. Um, for which they don't have the troops. Uh, they'll do a small diversionary attack where Arts wanted it, um, but the remainder of the army is going to be split between Conrad and Borjevic, um, who will each have their own offensive, Conrad in the Alps and Borjevic on the um, on the Piave. Um, 
And when the fighting starts, both uh, attacks is go are going to be too weak to achieve this complete breakthrough. Now, the battle begins in uh, mid-June, um, and it involves a lot of troops, almost everything they, uh, both sides have on the front. Uh, and in the Alps, Conrad's attack, like most of his previous offenses, uh, will prove dismal failure. Uh, they're going to capture some strong, but they're going to be strong resistance and suffer heavy casualties in the battle's first days. I think it's something like 40,000 in a few days. Um, and now the smart thing would probably have been to cut your losses to remain uh, and transfer those troops that you've gathered to Borojevich, who's, who's by then... Uh, proving quite successful in his own attack across the Piave. But of course, Conrad doesn't do this. He just attacks again and again and again uh, with predictable results. And that is tens of thousands of Austro-Hungarian soldiers lost in careless, doomed attacks. Um, now I mentioned that uh, Borovic's offensive was proving more successful. He uh, he crosses the Piave River on the 15th of June. He establishes some uh, bridgeheads. But... Um, the Italians don't really break like they did on uh, at Capoletto, and they are able to uh, push in reinforcements um, and mount a, a strong counterattack on the 19th. And the Austro-Hungarian troops are at this point they're tired, they're they're they're, they're lacking supplies, and in about um, nine days of fighting, the Austro-Hungarians are forced to call off the offensive and evacuate the bridgeheads across the Piave to avoid a complete annihilation of their army. And by the 23rd, the Italians have pretty much recaptured everything they've lost so far. Um, now, the battle itself is because the Austro-Hungarians just saw short of 150,000 casualties to Italy's 85,000. So it's one of the few battles where the Italians will lose significantly less than the Austro-Hungarians. And it is the last Austro-Hungarian strength that is spent here. They, they do not have strength for any... Um, any uh, offensive action anymore. They're going to remain on the uh, defensive for the rest of the war and just quietly waiting this final Italian offensive, which everybody is no, uh, knows is coming at this point. So in the wake of this June offensive, the Austro-Hungarian army is starting to deteriorate now, isn't it? Yes, it is horrible. I mean, the, the conditions on the front are just absolutely disastrous. Um, they turn catastrophic so quickly after this when, when they've uh, used the last uh, bit of, of, of supplies um, there's no food at all uh, they, they issued a little bit of bread each day containing a straw and sawdust and sometimes there's even accounts of, of there being sand in the, in, in the breads uh, meat is only issued to uh, combat troops not at all in the rear areas there is no meat at all it's all uh, it's completely rancid and full of uh, maggots and um, I have a, an account from a, from one Landsturm officer who records that his troop is giving just 40 to 50 grams of meat per day and sometimes as little as 20. That's hardly a, a single bite of, of, of meat per day. Um, and the daily fat ration is down to just 8 grams. And the soldiers eat everything. They see the cats and dogs and uh, artillery horses. They shoot their own horses, uh, butcher them, uh, and they, they have even cases of, of soldiers eating grass just to, 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 to survive and eat something. Of course, this have, has terrible consequences for their stomachs. And um, late in the war, the, some, some units, uh, the average weight of the soldiers is down to 55 kilograms. And uh, the army is, is expecting a loss rate of 5% per month due to malnutrition uh, during normal holding operations. Um, 
And uh, when, when Italian uh, intelligence interview Austro-Hungarian deserters, they found that up towards 50% of them are deserting because of hunger only. Then there's, of course, the material shortages. Uh, the soldiers don't have complete uniforms anymore. Even in the Alps, there are reports of soldiers manning positions in, in deep snow, wearing just a great coat on top of underwear and with no boots. And the soldiers, yeah? It's just mad. It is mad. I mean, the, the soldiers at this point are resembling traps more than soldiers. And mm. the sol- uniforms are just falling off their bodies. And some soldiers even re- express reluctance to entering the frontline trenches because they're ashamed of being sh- seen by the enemy in such condition. Uh, I think this is quite remarkable. And of course, then there's the disease, which is just tearing the, par- the ar- army apart. Uh, there's, of course, all these normal wartime epidemics, you know, but like cholera and typhoid for it and all these terrible nice diseases, and stuff like that all that terrible mm. stuff um then you then you have, you start to see the first cases of the spanish flu or what yeah. become known as the spanish flu but the real devastating is 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 maybe surprising to most uh malaria which is just rampant in northern italy uh, around mm. the lower piave and the um it decimates the army completely there are more than 330,000 cases of malaria during the war um and uh Borovich's troops are recording some six to eight hundred new cases daily, and by September uh, 1918, seven of his 15 divisions are reduced to half strength because of this disease uh, or this illness. Um, three entire divisions are put out of action completely due to malaria. One division arriving at the the front records 10,000 cases in a matter of days, and a quarter of these will will die. Uh, and as a result, the army is just lacking men. And in one place, a unit of about 400 men are tasked with holding 10 kilometers of front. It is just absolutely crazy. And then in all of this, they somehow find the will to send troops to the Western Front. Yeah, they do. They do. Uh, they, uh, the Germans are pushing for troops everywhere. They've lost a lot during the uh, spring offenses and... Um, and they're insisting that Austria-Hungary sends troops, and they do. Uh, in fact, they've they've done this before during the war. Uh, they on occasions they've sent uh, artillery units to support the Germans, most famously in uh, the invasion of Belgium in 1914, uh, but also during the Battle of Verdun in 16 and during the opening of the Spring Offensive in 1918. But now they're going to send um, uh, infantry troops, and they sent a single corps of four divisions. Um, now, only two of these divisions are going to see action in France, and they're mainly going to be fighting the, the French and the Americans, first at uh, Saint-Mihil in, uh, in September and later north of the Don in October. Uh, and in total, the Austrian games will actually suffer around 20,000 casualties during the last months of the war here. Um, more than half of them are going to be to disease, though. But while this is sort of a small part of the story, it's uh, one that's quite often forgotten, and I, I believe that many are, uh, are quite unaware that, that Austro-Hungarian troops actually fought on the Western Front, and especially Americans, that many of the troops that they were fighting in some of their, their most significant battles were actually Austro-Hungarians instead of Germans. So heading back to Italy mm. again, uh, Bulgaria now collapses in September yeah. 1918. Tell us what happens. Yeah, in uh, mid-September, the Allies launch an offensive uh, on the Macedonian front, and they break through the Bulgarian line, and uh, Bulgaria collapses and is forced to uh, sign an armistice uh, on the 29th of September. And this is a really big problem for for Austria-Hungary, because Bulgaria is mainly responsible for for what is known as the Macedonian front, uh, 
uh, just like Austria-Hungary is mainly responsible for the Italian front. Um, so Austria-Hungary doesn't really have many troops in the Balkans, uh, and at this stage, um, they're, they're faced with a onslaught, an onslaught of Allied troops consisting of French, British, Greek, who are now in war, some Italians, and this Serbian army that survived 1915, um, when, if you remember, they escaped, managed to escape uh, to Corfu, uh, and they are now pushing into occupied Serbia and Montenegro and into Albania. Um, and there's very little Austro-Hungarians can do it at this stage. And on the Italian front, this news is just spreading like wildfire and everybody's starting to get convinced that, that the war is over. There's nothing we can do. Our entire, the entire su- southern part of the empire is completely open uh, for the taking um, for um, for the Allied troops. Um, and it, it is a great deal. You can really read it in, in the diaries at that time that, that that is just now now the end is near. And they are really anticipating that this uh, um, this um, this offensive and, and, and will result in a complete collapse internally of Austria-Hungary. And um, I'm going to skip ahead a bit, a bit because at this, at this time in the story, um, Austria-Hungary is trying again and again and again to make uh, and with Germany at this point is trying to make uh, to get into armistice talks with the. Uh, with the Allies um, on the basis of these uh, 14 points, Wilson's uh, President Wilson's uh, famous 14 points. I'm not going to talk too much about them here. Um, but uh, they ultimately don't really come to anything. And in a last desperate attempt to um, to save his emperor, Karl is going to issue this uh, manifesto on the 16th of October, which is addressed to his faithful Austrian people, promising more autonomy um, to all of Austria's, but not Hungary's, uh, yeah. different people uh, once the war is over, giving them the right uh, to form their own states and basically reinventing the the empire as a, as a federal state. Um, but of course, this is just coming a little uh, too late and the manifesto uh, becomes uh, the point of no return for the collapse of the empire and its army. Because as soon as this it comes out, <laughs> all these nationalities are going to declare independence the Czechs is going to do it on 21st and others will sue for even Hungary is going to, um, even though they're not included in the manifesto, are going to declare independence and, and, and call for their soldiers to come home. So at the front, at this point, everything is just confused. Everybody's confused. Nobody know, knows what, what's happening. Remember, the army is still fighting Italy uh, despite this happening. I just want to round off the, uh, the manifesto because it mm-hmm. is really hard to estimate how, <laughs> how, how important this is for the collapse. Um, and I have a, a quote here from uh, a, a, an officer, a German, who, who writes, um, quote, uh, we are thunderstruck. We can simply, uh, you can, cannot simply dissolve the fatherland of an army standing before the enemy and immediately tie up the nationality problem in the trenches. Under the given circumstance, it's just not solvable. An army that starts to become political will always lose. And, I'm, and then I'm seized uh, with rage. This is insane have people forgotten that there's a war going on our soldiers have wives and children at home uh, who've been waiting for them for years houses and gardens that are perishing while they fight this must lead uh, to the immediate disbanding of the army an immeasurable catastrophe given the enemy's readiness to attack no one can teach our soldiers what is required of them now the state for which he has been fighting so far has been dissolved and now the man is supposed to fight for that very same now dissolved state 
And I think that really captures the the complete hopelessness of the situation at this point in the war. Yeah. The Italy do is, attack, yeah. don't they? Yes, they do attack. They attack on a very significant day, the 24th of October, which is, of course, exactly a year after the uh, disastrous battle of Caporetto opened. And this is a massive battle uh, involving almost 3 million men on both sides, and it is Italy's greatest effort uh, during the war. Now, in, um, in most English literature, um, the offensive is sometimes presented, uh, presented as, as a bit of a walkover. But when, there was never really any doubt that the Italians would lose. Uh, no, sorry, uh, would win. Um, the Austro-Hungarians put up a quite impressive fight, despite the situation they're in. The soldiers, even in, in their poor states and conflicted by all, all that's happening on the home front, they fight hard. And some units break, yes, uh, but at certain points, the Italians have to halt their offensive for long periods of time, simply because the, the, the resistance they meet is too strong. Uh, especially on this uh, mountain called Mount, Mount Asolon, on the, the uh, the Alpine part of the front. Um, this will really be the last hurrah for the Imperial and Royal Army, uh, as soldiers of all nationalities fight hard for every inch of ground. I mean, they're they're, they're counterattacking, attacking, and recapturing positions when they lose them. Uh, and remember, this is just like a week before the end of the war, and everybody knows it's going to end. And yet, uh, you cannot do anything but respect the Austro-Hungarian soldiers here and, and the fight that they put up. Um, they are often portrayed as these inferior troops, but I mean. How many uh, Allied trenches did the Germans really capture on the 7th or 8th of November? In, on the Italian front, the Austrian guys are even capturing Italian trenches and taking prisoners on the 29th of October. Remember, the war ends for Austria-Hungary on the 4th of November. And on the 29th, two Czech regiments, you know, the Czechs have been blamed for everything throughout this war. They were repel six consecutive Italian assaults on their particular positions on the 29th of October. And it's not until the night between the 30th and 31st of October that they are ordered to evacuate this mountain. And the men leave in good order. Um, and they've really held their position against all odds. Um, and as such, some people, uh, myself included, kind of see the battle of, of this Mount Asalon as the last victory of the Habsburg armies. And it happens just a couple of days before the end, uh, as Armistice Talks is actually underway. So the 4th of November 1918 is a commemorative day in the history of the First World War on the Italian front. Yes. Tell us why. Yes, that's when the war ends for, for Austria-Hungary. Uh, on the 30th of October, an armistice commission, an Austrian armistice commission, crossed the Italian lines under a white flag, and they begin negotiating an armistice. Now, um, they're going to take place at this place called uh, Villa, Villa Giusti, uh, which will also be the name given to this armistice Um and it will continue the negotiations until the 3rd of November, um, when the Austrians finally, finally sign the, the terms of the armistice, which will take effect the following day. Now, there's, uh, there's some confusion about this last point, um, and it is quite controversial, as the Austrians will later uh, claim that they were tricked by the Italians. But what happens is that when news of the signing of the armistice on the 3rd goes out, um, all Austro-Hungarian troops, are ordered to lay down their arms. But of course, the armistice doesn't take effect until the next day. So the Italians continue their offensive and while, while fighting the Austro-Hungarians, uh, who have pretty been ordered to stop fighting uh, at this point. And in the last 24 hours of the war, the Italians will take more than uh, 360,000 prisoners, who all think the war is over at this point. Uh, and the great tragedy is, of course, that many of these men will die in Italian captivity. But 
of course, this is just a tiny drop in the sea of, of losses the Austrian Hungarians suffered during the war, which is now coming to an end. And in the course of the four years of war, the estimated total of Austrian Hungarian casualties is coming at around 5 million, of which uh, up to uh, 1.5 million are dead. And you can add almost, uh, almost 500,000 civilian casualties uh, as a result of disease and malnutrition to that. So it's a disaster. We've mentioned that now the empire begins to crumble. I'm interested to hear about that, but also as well, we're going to talk about the consequences. Uh, namely, I mean, there's one Austrian that's pissed off that I can think of um, mm -hmm. when you're talking about consequences. Yeah. But how rapid and how total is the collapse of the empire? It's very quickly. Uh, I mean, in, in early November, you have almost 800,000 troops moving through uh, the Alps and eastern Slovenia away. The army is just not, uh, or the army command is just not in control anymore. Uh, and, and, and they're forced to report to the emperor that there is not even a single battalion available to guarantee his safety. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's gone. The army is not existent at this point. Um, and the army being the traditional protector of the realm, uh, now, now, now gone, uh, Emperor Karl is, is finally relinquishing every participation in the administration of both Austria and Hungary um, on the 11th and 13th of November, respectively. Now, he's, he's deliberately not uh, going to say that he abdicates. He, he doesn't say that. Um, but that's what the proclamation de facto is. And uh, he's going to be officially dethroned of Austria uh, in 1919. Uh, and with that, the Habsburg Empire uh, is no more, uh, really. Um, and now for a couple of years after the war, he, he's going to make a couple of attempts to try to reclaim the throne, but it's, it's going to fail. Um, and following a failed attempt in, in Hungary in 1921, he's exiled to the island of uh, Madeira, where he falls ill in 1922 and, and die of respiratory failure at the age of just uh, 34. So that's the end of the last emperor of Austria-Hungary. It's and, insane, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> but yeah, you talked about the, the consequences, and they, they are, of course, <laughs> immeasurable at this point. Uh, of course, uh, the war doesn't really end in 1918, um, not in the East and Central Europe, at least, which is pretty much all the Austro-Hungarian successor states, which will continue to fight <laughs> for a long time uh, over the new borders and where they should be and so on. I mean, the Czechs are going to fight the Poles, the Poles are going to fight the Ukrainians, the Romanians are going to fight the Hungarians, the Germans and Slovenes are going to fight, and everybody's going to fight the communists. So uh, war really continues uh, here for a long time after what we traditionally think of the as of the end of the First World War. Uh, but of course, um, in the ashes of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Central Europe, as we know it today, will will rise. And um, and there are, uh, some have cause for celebration. The Poles have uh, finally become independent again. Um, yeah, <laughs> of course. Uh, and But for us, it's a disaster. And... Um, these, uh, the, the final peace will come between the Allies and Austria with the Treaty of Saint-Germain uh, on the 10th of September 1919 and with Hungary at the Treaty of Trianon on the 4th of June 1920. And especially the last one uh, will be devastating for Hungary, uh, which will lose 72% of their territory and 64% of their population. So while peace is there, um, both... It, it, you know, there, you, you sow the seed of, of what will become the Second World War. 
um, with these treaties, much like the ones we the one we see uh, with Germany. Nikolai, thank you so much. This has been the most epic My pleasure. set of interviews we've ever done. Thank you for all <laughs> three parts on this because we sincerely wanted to cover not the Western Front and you've absolutely smashed it out of the park. I think we now have such a comprehensive understanding of Austria-Hungary in the First World War. It's been amazing. It's been epic. Um, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. I'm always happy to talk about this This. <laughs> we, are, <laughs> we are most definitely yeah. always happy to listen join us tomorrow when san francisco girl kelly kraus joins us to talk all about the history of her city this was absolutely brilliant you've like got vague things in the back of your head about a big earthquake at some point in time and the summer of love but she breaks it down all the way from pre-conquest through to the modern day and tells us a great story and then join us down the pub when we will be debating the greatest book ever written. Uh, I can see this ending up in a complete bun fight, especially if Beth brings Shakespeare to the party. So don't miss that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus. And we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.